The murders in the first floor family room were described by detectives as some of the most savage they'd ever seen. It's not supposed to happen in Beverly Hills. A movie executive and his wife were brutally slain in their million-dollar mansion. There were no clues and no suspects. Police speculated it was a professional hit. The murders in the first floor family room were described by detectives as some of the most savage they'd ever seen. Welcome to the second part of the Menendez brothers, Murder in Beverly Hills. As the months wore off, the detectives from the Beverly Hills Police Department couldn't find any link between the killings and the mob, so they shifted their focus towards Lyle and Eric Menendez. The detectives watched from afar as the brothers spent all the money they could get their hands on. As time went on, the boys seemed less and less interested in the investigation. Lyle and Eric never called to see if there was any progress made in the investigation, which just didn't sit well with the detectives. The murders happened in August of 1989, and by the end of the year, Lyle and Eric had spent more than a million dollars. The detectives get a break in the case when Glenn Stevens, a friend of Lyle's, tells them that on the 31st of August 1989, 11 days after their parents' murders, Lyle called a computer expert to come to the Beverly Hills mansion and erase all the files in Kitty's computer. Lyle was concerned that he was being disinherited and that his parents had written a new will that left Lyle with nothing. The experts managed to erase everything on the computer. Glenn also told the police Eric complained that Lyle was spending way too much money and that he was trying to manipulate him to hand over his share of the inheritance. On the 21st of October, the detectives interviewed Eric at the family mansion in Beverly Hills. Eric appeared cool and calm during the interview, but beneath the surface, he was profoundly shaken. As soon as the detectives leave the house, Eric tries to call Lyle in Princeton. but Lyle does not answer his phone. Conflicted and deeply disturbed, Eric then called his psychotherapist, Jerome Ozeal. And a few days later, they meet to talk about Eric's depression and suicidal thoughts. They walked around Beverly Hills for a few hours, and right before the session was about to end, Eric stopped walking. He leaned against the parking meter, looked at Ozil, and told them, We did it. We killed our parents. Ozil was shocked at what he heard. He started asking Eric more questions, and Eric told him that after him and Lyle watched a short, true crime series called Billionaire Boys Club, the brothers talked about their fear of being cut out from Jose's will and the fact that Jose was too strict with them. That's when they decided that the only thing they could do was to kill Jose. He continued by saying that Kitty posed a dilemma for the brothers because they did not want to kill her, but could not think of a way to kill their father without murdering her too. Ozil made Eric call Lyle and tell him to hurry up to the therapist's office. Before Lyle arrived, 
Eric told Ozil how they planned the perfect murder and that a few days before the murders, they took a trip to San Diego and purchased two shotguns. After the murders, they went to a gas station where they dumped their blood-soaked clothing and shoes into a dumpster, along with the shell casings. When Lyle arrived at the therapist's office, he was furious. He threatened the therapist and told him that if he told anything to anyone, he would kill him too. On the 2nd of November, the brothers meet with Dr. Ozil again. Lyle told the therapist that him and Eric think they should kill him so that no one could find out about their involvement in the murders. Dr. Ozil was scared and conflicted and did not know what to do in a situation like this. In theory, Dr. Ozil could have reported the brothers to the police because the threats against his life would have erased the patient-therapist's confidentiality barrier. But he did not. Instead, he made detailed notes and tape recordings of his sessions with the brothers. On the 17th of November, the detectives interviewed Eric's friend, Craig Signorelli. Craig told the police shortly after the murders had occurred, Eric told him how the brothers had killed their parents, how on the night of the murders they entered the television room where their parents were asleep, and how Lyle pointed his gun at Jose and shot him. He told Craig how Lyle then went behind Jose and shot him in the head. The plan was that Eric was to shoot his mom, but he was unable to. And when Kitty tried to get away, Lyle shot her as well. Eric continued to say that after his mother looked like she was dead, he shot her twice. The detectives were delighted to finally have someone who could testify against the boys. But before Craig finished telling the story, he says he isn't sure if Eric was telling an imagined story or the truth, because Eric ended the story with the phrase, it could have happened. Which was Eric's way of playing with Craig. The detectives didn't have enough to file criminal charges yet but the information they were putting together sounded promising. Two weeks later, at the police's request, Craig wore a hidden microphone while having dinner with Eric. When they met, Eric told Craig that he had been lying and that him and Lyle had nothing to do with their parents' murders. Even though the police did not have a taped confession by the end of that evening, they felt like the meeting proved that Craig was telling the truth. As time went by, the detectives found themselves increasingly worried because they couldn't find any concrete evidence that could tie the brothers to their parents' murders. The detectives started searching for the shotguns, thinking that would help tie the killers to the crime. They contacted the Department of Justice for a list of shops selling shotguns in the Los Angeles County the detectives thought Lyle and Eric had probably used one of their friends' names to purchase the guns. After they went through the 80-page long list, they came up empty-handed. On the 5th of March, 1990, the detectives finally received the big break they were waiting for. A woman named Jadalon Smith came forward and told the detectives that she was Dr. Ozil's mistress. She told
told them that Ozil had asked her to eavesdrop on the therapy session he had with the Menendez brothers on the 31st of October. Smith told the detectives that she overheard a shouting match between Lyle and Ari. That Lyle was furious with Eric and that Lyle shouted that they now have to kill Ozil and anyone associated with him. Smith also informed the detectives that Ozil had told her he recorded everything, including the confessions to the murders and the explanations for why the brothers had committed the crimes. Three days later, the detectives obtained a search warrant for Ozil's tapes. They knocked on the therapist's door and demanded the tapes. Ozil handed over 17 audio tapes and seven pages of notes. The detectives played short parts of the tapes and could hear the killers describe in detail what had happened on the evening of the 20th of August. The detectives were left speechless. They sealed the tapes and the notes into a police evidence bag and took them to the Los Angeles County Courthouse in Santa Monica. After reviewing the evidence, a judge signed the warrant for the Menendez brothers' arrest. On the 8th of March, Lyle was spending time with his friends at the Beverly Hills mansion. At around 1 p.m., they decided to go for lunch at the Cheesecake Factory and jumped into Eric's Jeep. Unbeknownst to them, down the street from the Elm Drive mansion, the police were waiting. As soon as the car leaves the estate, a blue Ford with police lights on pulls up in front of the Jeep. Lyle pressed the brakes before the car nearly collided with the blue car. He threw the Jeep into reverse and collided with a van that had driven up behind the Jeep to obstruct Lyle's retreat. The police surrounded the jeep and ordered Lyle and his friends to get out of the vehicle. Come out with your hands up! The boys did as they were told, and then the police came and handcuffed Lyle and his two friends. They were taken to the West Hollywood Sheriff's Station. Lyle was booked at the station and then transported to the Los Angeles County Men's Jail in downtown Los Angeles. The police wanted to arrest the brothers at the same time, but Eric was in Israel, competing in a tennis tournament. That afternoon, the Los Angeles County District Attorney, Ira Rayner, held a news conference in which he said that the Menendez brothers were being charged with the murders of their parents, that their motive for the crime was greed, and that special circumstances would be attached to the charges which meant that if convicted, the brothers could be put to death in San Quentin's gas chamber. The Menendez family was shocked when they heard of the charges and refused to believe that the boys were guilty. Kitty's family and friends were not surprised at all. For a few months, they had their doubts about the brothers' involvement in the murders. There was a lot of speculation in the media about whether Eric would try to flee from Israel. But Eric was too dependent on his brother, and on the 11th of March, he flew back to LA. Upon his arrival, 
at Los Angeles International Airport, Eric was handcuffed and charged with his parents' murder. He was then booked into the Los Angeles County Men's Jail. Even though the brothers had been taken into custody, the detectives were still trying to find any physical evidence that would link Lyle and Eric to the murders. From the tapes, the detectives learned that the brothers purchased the guns from a store in San Diego. They started searching the smaller gun stores in San Diego, but they came up empty-handed. In desperation, the detectives started searching the big discount chain stores. Three days into the search, the detectives entered the Big Five store on Convoy Street and asked the clerk for the store's firearms records. To their surprise, they immediately saw a familiar name in the records. On the 18th of August, 1989, there was a sale of two Mossberg 12-gauge shotguns for $199.95 each, and the form was signed by Donovan J. Goodrow, a friend of the Menendez brothers. They immediately called Donovan and asked where he was on the 18th of August, and Donovan told them he had been at his job, managing a restaurant in New York City. His alibi checked out. Now the police had found a physical link between Jose's and Kitty's murders and the Menendez brothers. The Menendez family retained very good and very expensive legal counsel for an island Eric. They selected Leslie Abramson to represent Eric in court. The Menendez case would mark her 15th high-profile murder trial. Leslie was extremely successful in her field having lost only one client to a death sentence. Her unwavering commitment to her clients, especially in Eric's trial, would later raise concerns about her conduct and ethical standards during his trial. Leslie charged a fee of $750,000 for defending Eric. The Menendez family hired Jean Lansing to represent Lyle a blonde woman who had just left the Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office to open her own private practice. Unlike Leslie, Jill was not comfortable in high-profile media-intensive cases. To defend Lyle, the family paid Jill $740,000. On the 26th of March 1990, in the courtroom of Judge Judith Stein, at the Beverly Hills Municipal Court, the Menendez brothers were formally charged with the murders of their parents. They were smartly dressed in expensive black suits, and their demeanor as they entered the courtroom appeared indifferent to the gravity of the situation, despite the fact that their lives were hanging in the balance. They both pleaded not guilty to the murders. Lyle and Eric would spend the next three years in the Los Angeles County Men's Jail, waiting for the trials to start. On the 4th of June, 1992, the California Supreme Court ruled 
that because of Lyle's threats against his therapist, some of Ozil's tapes could be used as evidence in the trial. The prosecution was elated with the ruling. The defense, on the other hand, was beyond disappointed. In June of 1990, while waiting for the trials to begin, Eric was extremely depressed and, at one point, he revealed to a priest some of the supposed traumas he suffered during his childhood. This was the first time when any of the boys mentioned that they were mistreated by their parents. It was from these conversations that the foundation was laid for the brothers' controversial defense. On the 8th of December 1992, the Menendez brothers were formally charged with the murders of their parents through an indictment issued by the Los Angeles County Grand Jury. The special circumstances attached to the case made the brothers eligible for the death penalty. The Menendez brothers' trial was held at the Los Angeles County Superior Court and Judge Stanley Weisberg proceeded over the trial. In May 1992, Judge Weisberg decided that Lyle and Eric Menendez would be tried together for the sake of time, cost, and convenience. The judge also ruled that each brother would have a separate jury. During a pre-trial hearing, the defense would admit that the brothers were responsible for the murder of their parents and that they would try to prove to the jurors that Kitty and Jose were responsible for their own murders, not Lyle and Eric. The boys were to be portrayed as victims of child abuse. This defense, however, presented one big obstacle. There was no evidence that the boys were ever abused. Lyle and Eric never told their psychologist about abuse. There was no medical evidence of abuse, no photographs of bruises, in other words, no history of abuse at all. The trial began on the 20th of July 1993. Lyle and Eric have changed dramatically since their arraignment in 1989. At the arraignment hearing, the boys were dressed in designer suits and acting cocky and arrogant. Now, they were quiet and reserved, dressed in boyish sweaters and khaki pants in an effort to make them look like teenagers, even though Eric was 22 and Lyle was 25. The interest from the public was so great that it was decided the whole trial would be broadcast live on TV. For months on end, Pictures of the brothers were covering the front pages of all newspapers. Throughout the trial, the Menendez family sat in the front row of the court to show their support for the boys, as they did not believe that Eric and Lyle were responsible. Notably absent from the trial were Kitty's family. The prosecution argued that the boys ended their parents' lives for financial gain, and that Lyle and Eric deserved the death penalty. The defense case took three months to present. The defense faced the challenging task of demonstrating to the juries 
that the brothers were under immediate threat before they killed their parents. Under California law, the imminent danger defense was the only way the brothers could be acquitted of the murders or to potentially be convicted of manslaughter, a charge that would carry out a much reduced prison sentence than murder. To secure either of the outcomes, the defense was required to prove two key points. First, that Lyle and Eric had genuinely feared for their lives, and second, that their parents' actions would have induced a similar state of fear in a reasonable individual. Throughout the trial, the defense argued that even though from the outside the Menendez family seemed happy, in reality, boys' lives at home were absolute hell. The defense said that the boys were extremely traumatized by the abuse they received from their father. Eric and Lyle claimed that their father had abused them sexually throughout their childhood and that their mother knew and did nothing to stop it. The defense claimed that when Lyle was young, he woke up one day and went to play with his pet rabbit, but when he saw his pet, its head was bashed in. Lyle believed that Jose and Kitty killed the pet to teach him a lesson. Because of this traumatizing event, they claimed Lyle wet the bed until he was 14 years old. Lyle testified for nine days. His testimony was filled with stories of the alleged molestation he endured from the ages of six to eight. He also told the jury that he sexually abused his brother when Eric was five years old. The brothers cried frequently during the testimony. Lyle testified that around the age of 13, he realized that his father was molesting his brother as well. Throughout the trial, the defense portrayed Kitty as being an alcoholic and mentally unstable and how she frequently abused prescription drugs. Lyle also testified that Kitty had sexually abused him between the ages of 11 and 12. The brothers alleged that Kitty blamed them for her failed career in broadcasting and that she even threatened to kill them on a few occasions. Lyle's testimony was extremely powerful in reaching detail. So much so that at the end of his testimony, members of the jury and the public were left crying. Eric told the jury that in the week before the murders, he was planning to move to a dorm to be closer to his school, but his mom and dad told him he would have to stay at home several days a week so they could keep a track of his schoolwork. The defense claimed that Eric was convinced that him staying at home would mean that the sexual abuse would continue. The defense was keen to prove that Jose and Kitty were planning to murder their children on the 20th of August, but there were a lot of problems with their theory. There was no physical evidence that the parents were planning to harm their children on the night of the murders. The prosecution argued that on the evening of the murders, Kitty and Jose invited their friends over to play bridge together. Unfortunately, their friends couldn't make it that night. If the parents were planning to murder their children, why would they ask their friends to come over? There was also the problem that Eric told his therapist about killing Jose because of his harsh treatment of the boys, 
but never mentioned any type of sexual abuse. The brothers never spoke of any sexual abuse until they needed legal defense, almost seven months after the killings. Lyle and Eric's friends turned against them and testified for the prosecution. Craig Cinarelli testified that 12 days after the murders, Eric described to him how the murders happened. Craig also told the jury that Eric never mentioned any physical, psychological or sexual abuse. Donovan Goodrow testified that his wallet and ID were left behind in Lyle's dorm room at Princeton when he had to leave because he was accused of stealing. Donovan also said that he confided in Lyle about how he suffered from sexual abuse growing up, but Lyle did not respond with any similar remarks about himself and never mentioned any sexual abuse. The Menendez family's live-in housekeeper testified that she had never witnessed Kitty or Jose yelling at the brothers. Eric said that on the Tuesday before the murders, him and his dad got into a big argument, but the maid said she never heard any noise from the alleged fight. In closing arguments, the prosecution challenged the defense's theory by saying, this is not a complicated case. These two people were watching TV and they got slaughtered by their sons. The prosecution also challenged the idea that the brothers did not plan the murders, pointing out that two days before the murders, they drove to San Diego to buy the shotguns. The prosecution called 26 witnesses, many of whom played minor roles in the drama of the case. These witnesses ranged from Lyle's bodyguards to the Big Five store clerk who sold Eric the shotguns, as well as the two computer experts who checked Kitty's computer for an updated will. Through these witnesses, the prosecution aimed to portray the brothers as accomplished liars, who meticulously orchestrated and executed the murder of their parents. The defense responded by accusing the prosecution witnesses of being liars and argued that the evidence in this case does not prove that Eric killed anybody. Judge Weisberg gave Lyle and Eric's juries four choices in deciding the brothers' fate. The juries could find the brothers guilty of first-degree murder with special circumstances, guilty of second-degree murder, guilty of voluntary manslaughter, or they could find the brothers guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Lyle and Eric each faced sentencing on three counts, the murder of Jose, the murder of Kitty, and the charge of conspiracy to commit murder. On January 25, 1993, after deliberating for 24 days, the jury announced that it was deadlocked. The trial results were a triumph for the defense. In Lyle's case, only three jurors favored the most severe charge of first-degree murder, while in Eric's case, five jurors voted for the first-degree charge. The case was headed for a retrial. The second trial began on the 21st of August, 1995. The brothers were tried together, 
Judge Weisberg ruled that the trial would not be televised this time. The retrial lasted 23 weeks and more closely resembled a regular murder trial. Somber, gruesome and occasionally dull rather than the media spectacle of the first trial. Like in the first trial, the defense strategy was to prove to the jury that the boys were terrorized, exploited, molested and abused to such a degree that they lived in a constant state of fear and that they killed their parents out of fear for their own safety. The prosecution learned from the mistakes that had been made in the first trial and called to the stand a few experts who could prove the brothers' intention to kill their parents. On the 6th of December, Eric began the first of 15 days of testimony. Eric's testimony was much like the one from the first trial. He described in detail the alleged sexual abuse that Jose supposedly inflicted on him, that his parents were violent, Kitty humiliated and degraded him, Jose beat and molested him, and him and his brother didn't kill their parents for money, but because they were afraid they would get killed instead. Lyle decided not to testify on his behalf because, between the first and the second trial, the prosecution had gathered a lot of evidence to show that Lyle had lied in the first trial. Prosecutors had tape-recorded conversation between Lyle and one of his friends where Lyle described how he snowed the jury at his first trial with his testimony about abuse. During the first trial, Lyle's defense argued that he killed his parents out of the mistaken belief that Kitty and Jose were going to kill him and that he was afraid for his life. Because Lyle refused to testify, his attorneys were not able to call child abuse experts to testify about his state of mind at the time of the murders. Without Lyle's testimony, his team completely changed the direction of his defense. They argued that Lyle killed his parents in the heat of passion and fear and anger overwhelmed him the night when him and Eric murdered their parents. In the first trial, the defense used the imperfect self-defense theory and argued that Eric and Lyle could not be judged based on the actions of a reasonable person because years of abuse had shaped the brother's perception of danger differently from that of a normal person. The defense had previously succeeded in persuading some jurors to vote to convict the brothers of manslaughter instead of murder. But in this trial, the story that they were trying to portray did not match well with the evidence. Imperfect self-defense usually applies only in the context of homicide or attempted homicide. When a defendant is charged with murder, the charge may be reduced to manslaughter on the basis of imperfect self-defense. The idea is that, while the defendant's actions were unjustified, they did not have the malice element that is required to get a murder conviction. This could mean that the defendant will not face the death penalty or life in prison. In the second trial, Judge Weisberg ruled that the evidence presented 
failed to establish that the brothers were facing immediate danger at the time they fatally shot their parents on the 20th of August 1989. Furthermore, the requested imperfect self-defense jury instruction would not be presented to the members of the jury. Another blow to Lyle and Eric's team was when Judge Weisberg ruled that the defense could argue that the brothers had shot Jose in the heat of passion, but this argument couldn't be applied to Kitty. He determined that there was enough evidence indicated that Jose might have incited his sons to commit a homicide, but there was insufficient evidence to support the claim that Kitty had provoked her sons in a similar manner. In closing arguments, the prosecution mocked the defense's claim of abuse by calling it the silliest, most ridiculous story ever told in a courtroom. The prosecution urged the jury to find the defendants guilty of first-degree murder and not manslaughter, and to reject Eric's claims that his father sexually abused him. The defense argued in their closing arguments that the prosecution's reasons for winning this trial were political, pointing out that the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office was under enormous pressure to win a big case after losing a number of high-profile cases, including the O.J. Simpson murder trial. The defense also argued that Jose caused his own death by molesting his sons and making them believe that they could not escape from him, and that Kitty caused her own death by not protecting her sons and making them believe that she was an enforcer of her husband's abuse. On the 1st of March, the jury began to deliberate. After 13 days of deliberation, Judge Weisberg replaced two female jurors with one male and one female alternate juror due to medical reasons, and the deliberations restarted. It's Wednesday, the 20th of March, 1996. The Los Angeles County Superior Court is packed with the defendants' families and friends, journalists and spectators. A door on the side of the courtroom opens and Lyle and Eric, each followed by courtroom guards, make their entrance. They look pale and worn down. They take a seat next to their legal counsel. A few moments later, the jurors make their entrance, their faces betraying no emotion as they take their seats, ready to deliver the verdict that would shape the future of the accused. The courtroom clerk shouts, All rise! The court is now in session. All people present stand up from their seats. The doors at the back of the courtroom swing open and Judge Weisberg makes his entrance. He is dressed in a black flowy robe that signifies his role of a neutral arbiter of the law. Beneath the robe, the judge wears a crisply pressed white shirt. At his neck, a necktie that thoughtfully matches his robe. Dark tailored pants complete the ensemble. His polished, close-toe shoes echo through the chamber, 
leaving no doubt that he is the embodiment of authority. He takes his seat and the clerk announces that the rest of the people can now take a seat. The courtroom is silent. The air was thick with anticipation. The clerk, her voice steady, broke the silence, opening the envelope that held the answer to the defendant's fate. Will the defendants please rise, she said in a raised voice, and the accused, anxiety across their faces, stood, their eyes darting between the jurors and the clerk. The clerk's voice rang through the courtroom as she began to read the verdict. We, the jury, find the defendants guilty of first-degree murder. Gasps, stifled sobs, and even a few muttered prayers swept through the gallery as the realization of the verdict took hold. The defense attorney's face contorted with disbelief, while the prosecutor's expression bore a triumphant gravity. Eric looks back over his shoulder at his grandma and mouths the words, I'll be alright, I love you. He then sighed heavily as he was led away. His brother made no eye contact with anyone while he was led away by officers. Jurors also found that there were two special circumstances attached to the murders, lying in wait and multiple murder. Because special circumstances were found, there were only two sentencing options. Life in prison without the possibility of parole or death by execution. On the 17th of April 1996, the jury decided that life in prison was the appropriate punishment for Lyle and Eric Menendez. On the 2nd of July, Judge Weisberg sentenced Lyle and Eric Menendez to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge sentenced the brothers to consecutive sentences for the murders and the charge of conspiracy to commit murder. Despite the brothers' wishes to be placed together in the same prison, the brothers were separated. Lyle was sent to the California Correctional Institution near Tehachapi, and Eric was sent to the California State Prison near Sacramento. Lyle and Eric were segregated from other prisoners and classified as maximum security inmates. They would not see each other for decades to come. The brothers try to appeal their conviction a number of times, but they have been denied a new trial each time they have appealed. In 1996, while in prison, Lyle married Anna Erickson, but in 2001, Anna failed for divorce after she found out that Lyle was writing love letters to other women. Lyle got married for a second time in 2003 to Rebecca Sneed. Him and Rebecca are still married. In 1999, Eric got married to Tammy Ruth Sackerman, a wealthy widow. They are still married to this day. After 22 years apart, the brothers got to see each other again in February of 2018, when Lyle was transferred to California's R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility 
the same prison where Eric was incarcerated. The brothers were moved in the same unit, and now they see each other every day. It is undeniable that Lyle and Eric Menendez killed their parents. Their audacious acts, fueled by their dreams of opulence and freedom, unfolded in such a surprising way that rocked the entire nation. Their dreams of a lavish, carefree lifestyle were cut short and replaced by the cold and unforgiving reality of life behind prison walls. The story of the Menendez brothers is one of the most notorious true crime sagas in American history. The case's mix of Hollywood ties, family drama, murder, wealth, and dramatic testimony were enough to captivate the nation for years to come, inspiring movies, books, podcasts, and documentaries. Join us next time on Dark Hour Chronicles, where we will discuss one of Italy's biggest murder cases. The brutal killing of British student Meredith Kircher and the intricate trials of Amanda Knox and Raphael Solicito.